I would just say there's one misperception of our veterans, and that is they are somehow damaged goods. Although if we tell our veterans enough that this is what's wrong with them, they may actually start believing it. Hey everybody, welcome to Dead Reckoning Radio. This episode we had Tim O'Brien and Aaron Matthews. The two of them described the process of filming the documentary that's about to be released, The War and Peace of Tim O'Brien. We dive into Tim's latest book, Dad's Maybe Book, and the struggles associated with it. We talk a little bit about the things they carried, our military service, and what it means to be a veteran and a father. I'm going to keep this introduction short so we can get right into the conversation. We, we want to, is there anything that you are tired of talking about that we can mark off the list and not bore you with? <laughs> is there anything we're not tired of talking about? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> There's not much, you know, so fire anything you want. Okay. I just figure you've probably gotten a lot of the same questions over the years. So we kind of tried to try to make the questions as, as fresh Good. as we could based on the interviews that, that we have seen with you. So. All right. You guys both look of military age. Were you both in the military or not? Yeah, so we're we're a veteran-owned company. We we actually only deal with uh, with veteran authors. Uh, oh, good, good. Yeah, so we're, we started independent publishing um, three years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah you we, guys we in met, the army, or what were you in? Yeah, we met in in, in the service in the army. We were both. Army. I was stationed in. Uh, we were both stationed in Vicenza, Italy. I was with the 173rd Airborne Brigade, okay. and he was an MP uh for the base in itself that's where we met and then we both were writing without really talking about it and then when we both got out we linked kind of back up and we're like hey we both write let's kind of promote kind of a a new type of story not following the stigma of like the broken people and also not putting us on a pedestal by any means right Uh, let's tell the the true stories and kind of also with the name with dead reckoning i always tell everybody with the name is to know where you are from where you've been so that was yep. part of you in your past, but what are you doing now? And uh, yeah. w- w- what's your direction going in the future? So that's kind of our whole philosophy is even though, yes, we're veteran centric, it's also, hey, that was just part of our life. Like, let's, let's move forward. Let's kind of keep this going. Right. We can talk about it and, and it needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. But w- what are you yeah. doing now? What are you doing to contribute? Right. What are you doing to serve like you wanted to originally? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah I, I've been following these guys for over a year now, Tim, and they do some really great work really slick interesting um publishing that they put out and um yeah they have some interesting projects coming up that that tie you know literature and uh and war and uh all themes that that were great so yeah they're I'm curious how, how did how, Tyler, how did you bump into an MP? Was it in a, some bar brawl or? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He, uh, so he, Keith is the fighter, actually. I'm probably a little more, a little more passive. I, I, oh. I, I, can, I have my, uh, my, my moments, but he, uh, I was a medic and he was, oh, friend, were you? and then one of my medic buddies, his wife was an MP. And yeah. so oh. Keith and that MP, my buddy's wife were friends. And then he became friends with my buddy. And then, I became friends. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think I had more more friends in the 173rd than I did in my own unit too. I, I didn't like the NMP very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you did not. It's no. like being a cop, basically. But right? I was I was pretty good at. It. I always tell people like you know I, I found the positive sides of it and I was able to uh, to actually just you know find that community policing side of it and and you know help people more than you know be an authoritative figure like I was right. I was put in a position that I could you know I could drive. A, <laughs> 
drive a super drunk soldier back to the barracks and probably get yelled at for it because it wasn't documented or whatever. But, you know, things like that I always liked. So right. I always ended up with uh, with more friends in, in Tyler's unit than my own. I've always wondered, did MPs, did you have, if, say, that was some you were a lieutenant and the violator was a captain, did you have authority to tell him what to do? Despite I mean, rank? that's one of those things, right? Like, yeah, you do, but do you really? Do you really? Yeah. Um, like we had, Tyler probably remembers, I had, I had a soldier just before I got him, this soldier did this, uh, like before he was under me, uh, he pulled over a Fulberg colonel and yeah. the guy got out, of, he, he got out of his car and started walking towards him, which, you know, I mean, nothing's going to happen on a base anyway, but he told him right. to get in his car twice and then told him to get the fuck back in his car and <laughs> it didn't it didn't go over well like a little mosquito oh. wing private oh uh, man so then i don't it went both ways like the provost marshal was but but i mean that's the long and skinny like so yeah you have authority but i mean you still have to extend right. those customs and courtesies and yeah. and if one or the other isn't done then uh then it can right. be in trouble yeah. lots of remedial training lots <laughs> oh bet yeah but um and that's why they have we have duty officers too like as mps like when there's a when there's a patrol shift or whatever uh there will be either uh a sergeant first class or above like sergeant first class to master sergeant or a uh, mm-hmm. or a lieutenant and above uh for the officer that's that's on um mm-hmm. and it's for that reason so that if you know so that it's not privates right. Commanding a a three star general to you know get down right. on his knees so they can do a search <laughs> like someone of of rank can come in and kind mm. of assist with the the delicate nature of that situation, mm. but just just even more things yeah. that I really didn't enjoy about being an MP. Yeah. Well, there were many times I wished I had the MP's authority to go after some asshole officer. Yeah, I, I sure. would I would have loved it. I wouldn't have been afraid to do it. Let him bust me. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> What, what rank did you end up making it to? I came out a sergeant. Sergeant, yeah. That's yeah, I just went in a regular drafty private. Yep. So what were you? What were you guys? EM or officers? No, no we were both enlisted. enlisted. Yeah, yeah. Both I got out a sergeant. Did you, Tyler? Did you get promoted before you left? Uh, no, my uh, oh, my that's opinions right. my uh, my mouth kind of <laughs> prevented that. <laughs> so I uh, kind of pissed off the guy who was in charge of me at the exact moment that I was about to go to the board. And he pretty much told me re-enlist or stay a Joe. So I was like, well, yeah. I was already on the fence. You pretty much solidified it. Thank you. So thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, and I got out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so we, we've already started recording. We can add all that. We can chop it all out. It, it, it's all up to us. I think it, it's it's already going pretty well. Yeah. Uh, we can kind of jump right into it. Do we have a time restraint or anything with you? I do. I've got to be done uh, in uh, hour and time is it here so I'm in about an hour and 10 minutes so okay we'll be an hour and nine then okay all right um so we kind of figured uh we we would start um you know at the end uh we'll we'll, we'll start with the end um with dad's maybe book and we wanted to talk about that a little bit um, okay most people who are going to be listening to this already kind of know your your background and you know have read probably at least one of your books um but dad's maybe book was introduced as your last book. So, you know, what is, what does that mean for you and, and your readers? And well, for my readers, it means they have to reread everything or else read nothing because 
when you're done, you're done. I don't know now. I mean, I did think it was my last book and I'm probably right about that. I had thought over the past couple of weeks of, uh, of another book that would be possible. But this morning I woke up, I don't know, four o'clock in the mornings getting nervous about this interview and I was didn't doing dishes and I started going over the new idea and I thought, Oh God, you know, that's, that's not up your alley too hard. So who knows if I had to say, I would say dad's maybe, but probably will be the last. What about Angie being the bank teller? What about what? Angie being the bank teller that you, how do you know team. about Angie? <laughs> you mentioned it. Uh, we're oh, weirdos, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> that is bizarre. I mentioned it where? In the documentary. Oh, in the, oh, in the documentary. That's the right. Near the, near the end. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, that's what I woke up worrying about this morning. Yeah. What the hell do I do with her? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, uh, Aaron, what about, what about you? Whenever you saw, like, when you proposed this idea, obviously our, our listeners can go back and listen to our interview back then. Um, did you know that this was his last book when you kind of approached the project? Like how, exactly how did that happen? Um, what exactly did you recognize during that process? Um, Cause I'm sure you guys talked off camera a bunch as well. And what's uh, what's your feeling towards that? I recorded everything in a secret. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so I'll be, I'll be, I'll be making that public soon. Um, no, uh, I had no idea that this was going to be Tim's last book. In fact, I, I spent the, the first couple of years filming thinking that he wasn't going to finish the book and actually kind of secretly hoping he wouldn't because I just thought of it. Like, if he didn't finish the book, then I could keep making this movie like for the next 15 years and not have to worry about an ending. Um, and then one day I showed up, like, uh, like almost at the halfway point, and Tim told me, you know, I turned on the gas and uh, I just wrote 150 pages over the last few months. I, w- I would visit Austin periodically and check in. And it, it was clear that he was hell bent on finishing the book. And I was like, oh, shit. Now, <laughs> now I have to get here and I have to start making this film because we have an ending. Um, and then at that point on, we were from that point on, we were both kind of on the same track in, in a way like uh, he was he wanted to finish his book and I, I wanted to finish the film in a timely manner. Yeah. What Aaron is forgetting is that he promised this would be his last film. I say that. So. Yeah. Well, each one, a book and a film is a huge undertaking that consumes practically all your life. Um, it, it uh, does. And especially with two family men now, uh and well four here on 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 screen so uh can you kind of dive into that of balancing uh the work the family balance everything especially with you kind of uh writing this book specifically for your kids right well i'm an older father i had my first kid at age 56 now i'm 74 and uh for the first i can't remember exactly but i'd say 10 years i didn't write at all i just quit because I was determined I was going to be a good father. And I couldn't be one if I'm spending 10 hours or 12 hours a day at a computer screen. And by a day, I mean weekends and Christmas and my birthday and their birthdays. I couldn't do that. So I did quit for quite some time, years. 
Uh, when the kids were old enough not to die because of neglect, which was, I don't know, five years or so, or you got to, you know, feed them by hand and all the things you do. Uh, I began writing a little, uh, mostly at my wife's urging. She said, you know, you, you talk about these kids constantly and worry about them constantly. So why not put it into something pro productive instead of just bitching all the time? And that's what I began doing early on. I wrote a little love letter to, to my son, Timmy, when he was a little older than an infant, maybe one year old, something like that. And I did it because of a commission for what was then Life magazine. They asked me to do a little one-page uh, piece for them about fatherhood. And I did that. And then that rested for a year or two before anything else happened. And then one of the kids, that Timmy, the old, he was then, I don't know. I can't remember how old he was, but I did another piece about singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat all night long for eternity. It's a round. It doesn't even go anywhere. It just goes in a circle. And you do that for 12 hours trying to put this bawling kid to sleep. And he doesn't sleep. He'd stop singing and he'd bawl. And he'd bawl when you held him and he'd bawl when he ate and he'd bawl when he didn't eat. He'd bawl when you held him and bawled when you didn't hold him. We, 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 Meredith and I were both rookie greenhorn parents. We, did, we thought we were making some horrible, you know, mistake. Like we didn't know what, but, and we'd call the emergency, or not the emergency room, the pediatric department, you know, that took. But we, and, and they'd say things like, put him on the clothes dryer and run that. And the warmth and the hum will put him to sleep. And the only person to put to sleep was either me or Meredith standing there at the damn clothes dryer for two hours while the kid cried. Nothing worked. And finally, one day, Meredith, my wife, I found her crying in the hallway right outside Timmy's bedroom. And uh, it was a Sunday, and I just loaded up myself and Meredith and Timmy, and we went to an emergency room. And two or three hours later, we emerged with a thing called Prilosec. Turned out he had acid reflux. So it mm. hurt to eat, but it also hurt not to eat because he was hungry. And so that's why he was crying all the time. Uh, we also emerged with two prescriptions for Xanax, which for Meredith and for me, <laughs> that by then we really needed. Uh, so those are the, that's kind of how the book was born. It was born in their, in their infancy, and then over the next several years, they became human beings. They talked and developed emotions and empathy and, you know, anger and all the things that humans have. So it was the book uh, was born in that way. Eventually, my military experience in Vietnam became part of it. I began wondering what questions they would want to ask of me, even if I were dead and gone. I was, became more and more aware of how old I was. As they got older, I got older. And it occurred to me that when they were 20 years old, they might never know their father. He'd be gone. And so some of the material in the book and in the film uh, has to do with my fierce desire for to give my my kids a, a 
kind of gift of who their father was, his own history, what he'd gone through in his life, uh, what still bothered him uh, years and years later. So that's how it was born. Then Aaron, Aaron came in in the midst of this, I think in a fairly early stage when we first met. I don't know how old exactly. Maybe they were. But do you remember, Aaron, how old? It was, it was uh, like seven years ago. Oh, they yeah. Were like so 10 they, and 8, you know? 10 and 8 years old. Yeah, they were very young still. Yeah. And so Aaron periodically lived with us. He'd come for a week, three days, two weeks. At first, not often, but more and more often as the film progressed. And so Aaron became essentially a close and loved member of our family. Not just by me, but by Meredith and by Timmy and Tad both. And so the film, I think, Meredith, I mean, Aaron can talk about this probably better than I can, but I think that close friendship and proximity to our family made the film more intimate because we let down a lot of barriers we never would have let down without knowing Aaron so well, trusting him and liking him. Did you it, feel that, that kind of dynamic, Aaron? Oh, totally. Uh, and you know, and that that credit goes all to you. I mean, I'm I'm I will be eternally grateful, not just for your friendship, but for for um, letting me in bed with you and and follow you around with the camera. And I'll tell you the 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 the, the most universal response I've gotten from people so far who have seen the film is in the first line or the first sentence they they say to me is, um, I am so grateful. For Tim O'Brien letting you make this film. It's just like, mm. it's about gratitude that he was uh, willing and able to open up his life um, in this intimate way and kind of break down a lot of, um, a lot of the, 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 the barriers and kind of, um, you know, the, the put, put on the pedestal misconceptions we have about artists and, and tell a story about how artists function with kids as like normally functional adults, you know? We, we tend to want artists to be these like unencumbered, towering geniuses, you know, with no families and they just kind of, you know, sprinkle some fairy dust and boom, another, another uh, work of art is there, you know? They don't worry about families or diapers or money or all that stuff. And I think Tim's greatest gift really in this film that we we are that I and, and everybody else should be grateful for is just showing that he's encumbered, you know, and mm. like like everyone else, you know, and that I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. I think that is the appeal is Tim. Obviously, you're you're known for, and, and unfortunately, and I know you're you're kind of uh, and not not necessarily too proud of it but you are known for your service and all the, all the war stories but what is attractive about this documentary and this book is uh only so many people can really relate to war and all of its atrocities and all of its glory um but being a father any almost any man who's a father can relate to that and i imagine aaron as well while he was filming could could immediately understand that the time that he was spending with you was time that he was spending away from his family. And the time that you're spending in front of the computer is time that you're spending away from your family. The time that we're doing dead reckoning is time that we're spending away from our family. And, 
And like you said, the, the struggle of, uh, of putting all yourself into something as passionate people that we are, um, our family is the one who wears that burden, you know? And so the, to, to give that gift to your kids is something that is extremely admirable. And that honesty and that transparency is something that most people uh, strive for, you know? And mm-hmm. and something I think all men want to be able to do for their kids. Keith himself talked about that. He's writing a journal for his kids, you know? Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that as Tim was talking about dad's maybe book. And I was like, yeah, I thought about this the other day. I was like, man, this is such a good idea. Cause I've been writing down just little entries. Um, and I thought I had a really good original idea and I'm like, this is dad's maybe book. Shit. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so, well, but it everybody is... has their own Keith. I mean, that stories, <laughs> stories are not mine. Yeah. So keep, keep going. Yeah. I think it'll be something cool and I'm sure your kids will appreciate it the same way. You know, I think it's, um, it's something that, that everybody should do, you know, just like a family photo album, which is kind of those. And those things, as we do things more digitally, those things are kind of going away. We don't have as many tangible items, um, you know, that, that somebody can pick up, you know, yeah. the family, family Bible, the, you know, family photo album, things like that. Yeah. In fact, now that Aaron's made this film, they're going to have major entry in their family album. Yes. Mm-hmm. A, a documentary where they're going to not only get to see their dad, and, but they're going to see themselves as kids. I don't know about you guys, but I've probably erased most of my childhood by now. I mean, little snatches are here and there and little, you know, 12 second memories that then no before, no after. But to have a, you know, an hour or so of, uh, of their own lives unfolding, reminding of them who they had once been when they were kids. There's a scene in the documentary which for me is the most touching of all the scenes. I'm not in it. It's Meredith, my wife, and my two boys lying in a bed. And I had been having a really bad day writing. The struggle had been awful. And they were kind of commiserating about, uh, you know, their, their dad. You know how they have to kind of go on tiptoes around him. Can you say more about that scene, Mer- uh, Aaron? Yeah. Um, the... the- Emotional core of the film, I think, really is the, the, this idea of fatherhood and balancing, you know, work and family and Tim's relationship, Tim's relationship with his boys and also with Meredith. And um, that scene, as Tim pointed out, is the two boys and Meredith kind of talking about how they're going to deal with their dad's struggles. And that, that's another gift, I think, that Tim gives in this film which is uh, he, he wears his struggles um, on the outside and, and is willing to um, express, or he's, he, can go, he can go deep with the, the importance and value of struggle in our lives and, and make us all realize that struggle, strug- to struggle is to to live and that that burden is something that if you're living um consciously and um you're caring about the world that you live in and that struggle is a a manifestation of that of that essential caring that's that's kind of a long-winded way of what i'm trying to get at and Mm -hmm. and tim is is like especially these days when you know these are dark days for for the world and um Tim is a good companion 
you know, we're, we're all dealing with struggle and, and various, and we're struggling in, in, in various forms. And um, him is kind of pointing a way forward. And it, it's always helpful to have someone who's dealt with crisis and, and, and hard times to, to articulate what we're going through in ways that we might not even be aware of. I especially found that interesting because like with my, my job right now, this business with writing, with just this overwhelming, I guess, sense of responsibility in some sense and being attached to the, I guess, stigma in some sense of veterans, we were seen as these almost stoic figures where we're able to detach from our emotions in order to put ourselves uh, uh, in that moment to write about it as clearly as we can. And then yet at the same time, there's so much emotions attached to those events and so we're very emotional people, yet we can control them in some sense. And then when it comes to our family, it's like we are almost the same way. We're able to detach from them and they're and we're not very empathetic, maybe in the moment at times. And so that's when they walk on those eggshells. And then when it all comes back to us because we've been so detached, it's like overwhelming and you just feel guilty in some sense. And, and you feel uh, it's kind of overwhelmed. And it's because we kind of kind of keep going between these pendulums of creating something that we have to be in a one mindset and then going back to reality and being in a completely different mindset and having to deal with how you were right. in that moment. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I know that's what I personally got from it was I was like, yeah. I, I completely understand this war and peace when, when you're with mm -hmm. your family, there is that sense of peace and there, there is that sense of just calm yet. Mm -hmm. You're also sorting through what you just had to put them through. <laughs> and that was part of the war. And you're just like, damn, yeah. I'm an asshole. Like, why know, would they love me? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the feeling. Yeah. And you're, you're really right about the, the, the process of writing, both kind of a combination of what you just said, Tyler, and what Aaron was saying is you do have to objectify it when you're writing. You can't be bawling and write a good sentence, or you can't be angry at the world and write a good sentence. You have to somehow remove yourself from it it's kind of over here where your kids are over there and the war is over there uh, and publishers are over there somewhere. But when you're actually doing it, you're, you have to find another kind of way of looking at the world, which is the artistic way. How do I make something beautiful out of anger and out of uh, guilt and out of all the things that you just mentioned? And that's a, that's a much more objective sort of thing. And that's what causes the biggest struggle is, is how do you find objective ways to transmit the terror you feel as a hand grenade lands beside you in a war that you know is going to go off? There's no sentence that's adequate that, that transmits it. Uh, at least I haven't found it. And God knows I've spent a lifetime trying. Yeah. But you keep struggling. You just keep trying. There's a line in the film that it, it might be my, and it's from Tim's book. And it, it's, it, it caps a scene. And for me, I just, I, I carry this with me as, as kind of an emblematic phrase about life and, and um, kind of the difficulties. And Tim says, um, in, in his addressing his children, it's hopeless, meaning life. And all the, all the, you know, our travails, it's hopeless, but pretend it's not, you know, and that, that pretend it's mm -hmm. not is just, it just, I, I'm, I'm, I have the goosebumps now just saying it because that, 
seems to me to encapsulate just everything that we're we're trying to do on this earth. Like deep down, we we know that it it's pointless in so many ways, um, and there's it, life is hard in so many um, different ways for us. But but the pretending is what uh, makes us human, and it what it's what allows us to persevere and to, and to at least take a stab at making the world a better place. I think we should all be doing. Yeah, and it's also true of the combat experience for me. That's I would pretend myself out of Vietnam, quite literally. You're on guard for two hours. It's black. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're afraid you're going to die. But my imagination would just, I didn't will it. I didn't try to do it. It just happened. I'd be back home in Worthington, Minnesota on a date with some cheerleader in high school and, or pretending I was, I had damn few dates with cheerleaders, <laughs> but, but, uh, it, but I wanted to. And it, it was a way, I, I think it probably happens in hospitals when people are, you know, in with bad case of breast cancer and the world looks dim and hopeless. But eventually you, you, you go into a portion of yourself where you kind of move out of it in your imagination. You can only endure it for so long, staring into the black, whether it's in Vietnam or the black of a, of a hospital. Uh, and the human capacity for imagining your way or pretending your way out of it is, is how I think as humans we deal with the world. When I write a novel, I'm living in the world, pretending. I'm pretending that whatever is happening on the page is, is happening to the point that I believe it. I mean, I believe it's happening when I'm writing. I don't disbelieve it. The opposite is true. And I think art comes out of that same uh, human capacity for imagination that chipmunks do not have. And wolverines don't have it. But we're blessed with it. And it's a, it's a much, in my opinion, underrated tool for survival in this world, just being able to pretend. So do you find that's part of your process too? Like, that, that, is that your day-to-day? is kind of placing it yourself in that, in that world? It is. When I sit down or I write really early, I get up at three in the morning and I'm at work by four, almost always. First hour, I'm not in that world of pretending yet. I'm trying to get there. I'm working on sentences where I left off the day before and typing. But I'm waiting for that miracle of looking through the words and seeing Angie Bing, you know, a four-foot dynamo come walking on, and there she is before me. Or though there's Azar and the things they carry blowing up a dog. And as I'm writing it, I'm looking through the words, paying attention to the language, but it feels very real to me, even though it's utterly imagined, completely made up. It feels as real as you do right now. I'm looking at you, Keith, on the screen. Now, so, I mean, we can, we can talk a little bit about that with, with the things they carried because a lot of that was extrapolated from, you know, past events. Like, did you have to put yourself back into that place or was it a whole new place? I'd say it was a mixture. Uh, some of the, 
some of the events are based on real things. They're, they're, the real thing was like a kind of launching pad mm. that uh, one day we were riding on tracks. You guys know what tracks are? They're like armored personnel carriers. Yeah. And we, we were infantry. This, this rarely happened, but we were able to ride it. We were going through a very deep rice paddy, maybe three feet deep on these, mach- these big machines. And we took RPG fire. We jumped off to get cover behind the tracks. And the tracks backed up. They backed over us. And because of the slushy, mucky, dense rice paddy, we couldn't move fast enough. One guy had his leg, I don't know if it was taken off entirely, but it looked like it. And another guy was squashed dead. And we had to go probe for him after this ended, going through this rice paddy with the butt end of our rifles, trying to find his body. It was one of the worst days of the war. His name was Roger McElhaney. And, uh, when we found him, he was almost without blood. He was like a, like a compressed carcass. Uh, that's the real event. In the things they carried, there's a, a chapter, in, really a chapter and a half about a shit field, which was another real experience. We made camp one time in a field that the villagers used to poop in. And that found its way mixing in with McElhaney. That, uh, and then it, the monsoons, which were real, fed into the shitfield story and the things they carried, uh, where the earth starts to get deeper and deeper and mushier and old mushier. And all these real things fed into a thing that was completely imagined in the end of. Kiowa dying, sinking into the muck of this shit field, which struck me as a pretty good metaphor for the word waste, which we used in Vietnam for getting wasted dead or wasting other people, a waste of poop. Uh, So the real world feeds in, but when I'm writing the scene in the shit field and the things they carried, I'm in a new place. It's born in real stuff, but when I'm actually composing it, I'm seeing a real field of four foot, three foot deep shit boiling out of the earth as mortar rounds are coming in and as a, as a man is dying. So it's, it's, I think for all writers, it's, it is this kind of mixture. You begin in the real world. But as soon as you, for example, use a proper noun, like the word George, or the word Keith, you're in a new world. It's not your real friend, it's a new person. And when you put in scenery that's made up, and eventually you're living in that new world that was born out of, uh, out of a real world. It's a hard thing to describe, but that's as close as I can get. Well, I think you describe it with one of the quotes that I tell everybody that I love of yours is, Fiction's for the truth, and the truth isn't good enough for the truth. Right. And what I kind of wanted to pass over to Aaron is, like, you were almost restrained to the truth. I know as a, as a writer, a growing writer myself, is when I've written nonfiction, there's times I'm, I feel limited to the, the actual true story, and I want to add in more. And there, there's 
theories and concepts of whether you're necessarily allowed to do that within nonfiction. I'm not going to get into all of that, but fiction allows you that space. When you're creating a documentary about Tim's life, like you said, you had these kind of expectations prior to even filming. And you're like, man, if he just hasn't finished it, this would be great because then I don't have to worry about it. But <laughs> when the story was given to you, you, you weren't even there every, every day. So you're only limited to the times that you have a camera on him. Can, can you kind of expand on that when you are kind of uh, with, contained to the real world? Do, do you think it would have been easier if you were like, hey, Tim, can you say this for me, please? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, one, one of the appeals of documentary is that there are those boundaries. Um, I remember reading an essay, this is uh, just a, a quick tangent about the beauty of the dunk, you know, and when, when Dr. J, I think he was the first one to actually do it, but the essay was about how that, that never would have happened in basketball if there weren't rules, if there, were, if there weren't lines where you could, where you had to stay in and play, if there, were, if there, if there weren't rules about how many steps you could take before you shoot the ball. And there's something for me um, about documentary that, like, it has enough of these borders and restraints um, that it, it, it is freeing for me. And, and, like, writing fiction might just be too overwhelming for my brain. Um, but, but Aaron, you're being too modest because you, you do make a lot of creative decisions about like, what you use and what you don't use. You got all this footage, and I bet for every inch of footage, you got 12 inches were thrown away. So that selectivity is a big part of it. And then where does it go in the order of things? I remember you struggling over that. That's, those are creative decisions. What goes first, second, third, fourth? And so you're, you, 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 like a fiction writer, you're molding a work of art. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, your editorial and filming decisions both you see a movie kind of happening in your head. This could go there before you even start shooting. There were yeah. times when uh, I remember Aaron shooting things that I had no idea why he was doing it. One of which was, <laughs> Aaron remembers this, these little slips of paper on which I'd write notes. I'd get up at three in the morning and then my, all these bumblebees would go through my head. So I had this big stack of notes. And Aaron one day laid them out on the desk, like these real notes. and just went through them, having me read aloud what was on them. Well, I had no idea why you, I mean, I remember asking, why are you doing this? And your answer was, I have an idea. And I'd say, what? And you say, well, it's not wholly formed yet. Just like a writer would, you have an idea. And it did find its way into the film at just the appropriate moment. So those kinds of choices you, you did make. Oh, yeah. Right? And even, even, you know, as soon as you lift up the camera, you're making an editorial decision, in, in, in a way, a manipulation. And mm -hmm. people are responding to that. And one of the reasons that the film feels so intimate is that I, as Tim mentioned, like I did hang, hang around long enough so that a lot of the initial shock of having a camera a foot from your nose falls away. Um, and... You know, you can kind of sense that in films when when people just show up for a day or two and people have that kind of rigid reaction, you know, but you're still making an editorial decision and people people at, at some subconscious level are still aware that they're being recorded. So even even in the the in the production process, like that's that's a decision and that's being made 
um, in terms of how you're framing it, um, what, what light you're using, what's in the background, you know? And then as Tim said, when you're editing, there, there's so many parallels between like putting together a documentary film, the, the editing process and writing. And I, I've been fascinated with that for a long time because I've, I've a, a long time ago, I, I wanted to be a writer and, and um, putting together films is where I ended up going. But the, the, um, the similarities between, you know, what you're doing um, as a writer and what you're doing when you're kind of writing the script at the end of a documentary film are really, you know, immense. I think like accumulating that footage too. Um, you know, I don't know if that's something that every uh, every documentary filmer will will attest to, but like you know, I, I think immediately of uh, that documentary that came out recently. And I'm not super savvy with uh, with filmmakers, but uh, and I know it was a really famous guy who made it, so I'm going to embarrass myself. But that uh, World War One documentary, "They Shall Not Grow Old," and oh, it was Peter Jackson, all Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. Right. See, you guys know. Um, so but it was all archived footage you know and i don't think they had any idea what they were going to do with the footage but they just had hours upon hours of footage from these guys coming back from world war one and it had sat for such long periods of time and then they did a beautiful job with it colorizing it and you know placing it chronologically like you know um do you do you feel that you were filming just a lot of things and then figuring out what to do with it, Aaron, or do you think that, you know, with certain things like the scene in the bed, do you think that was just chance or was that happening enough that you were like, I want to get this, this on film for sure. Yeah. You, you have to go in with a map when you're mm -hmm. making anything. I think. And if you don't have a plan, then you're just going to feel lost, whether you're, trying to paint a picture or, or write a novel or, or put together a film. So yeah, I, I did have ideas of film, of, of scenes I wanted to capture and, and um, plot points I wanted to hit. And 95% of them get thrown out, you know, or they trigger another idea. But that scene in particular, I thought, I, what, the way I approached that kind of stuff is I, I knew that I wanted a scene with, Tim's family talking about his work, but I had no idea what they were going to say and how that scene was going to evolve and what, and whether I would end up using it and where it would fall in the film. So like the film is not, chrono it, it seems like it's chronologically told, but my allegiance is, is to the story. So mm -hmm. if a scene that I filmed, you know, uh, in year four works better uh, at the, in the front of the film, um, then I will do that. That's so much mental mapping, though, where you filmed yeah. within seven years, or it came out seven years ago, but you filmed for over four years, correct? And Filmed for four years, yeah. And to remember something <laughs> or to live it in that moment, you'd be like, oh, man, this will be great back here. So, like, you're constantly working on some kind of timeline or at least categorically, uh, maybe not chronologically. So uh, that's uh, impressive and everything. There's a lot, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of um, uh, logging and categorizing and, and word searching yeah, that yeah. goes on, like, because I've, I, I uh, had transcriptions of everything I shot, and I wrote them out, and cool. I had someone else helping me with the transcriptions, and so you're, you're kind of keeping a catalog of all the scenes, and you're, it's just a, 
three-dimensional puzzle that you're you're always kind of reworking and mm-hmm. I mean, one of the great gifts that the, the film had also was just Tim's words not only his spoken words but his written word and so that element of dad's maybe book right, yeah was a was a kind of anchor for a lot yeah. of and as soon as I hit a point where you know I, I wanted to step back and have viewers ask like oh what does this mean or what 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 should I take away I was like oh let's go to Tim's book you know yeah. let's go to his written words and then have this kind of moment where you can feel um what what you might want to be taking away at a certain text so yeah i think yeah. those are those are some of my my favorite parts um cuz mm-hmm. i just, i just think they're placed so well you know aside from the candid moments and stuff i think um they're just they're they're really well you know placed throughout the film um the other thing that i i really liked that i wanted to mention too was uh the way aaron that you captured tim speaking to veterans and talking about his his thoughts towards war it's you know some things are are pretty clear in terms of your views tim um i just finished uh, achilles in vietnam so that has your you know your words right on on the cover um right, and so right. it's it's not a secret you know it's it's not buried in in a box in the closet like how how you feel about war you've expressed it publicly um but i think i think it was really cool how uh, Aaron captured you, you know, speaking with veterans, speaking with younger, you know, younger men um, looking yeah. to gain some kind of guidance as to whether or not they should join this, you know, 20 year war that we're, yeah. we're going on. That was one of the weird experiences of doing the film. I found myself a lot more comfortable talking to veterans of your ages, contemporary veterans. Then veterans of my own age, there's one scene in, uh, where I was talking to a group of veterans. I think it was in Binghamton, New York. I'm not yeah. sure of that. Yep. And they were my age. And the skepticism on their faces when mm-hmm. I said, let's be cautious about killing people. Uh, it, it's better to be a, you know, not killed and kill. And if we can find ways not to, let's try not to do it. It seems to be pretty sensible. And I think I had used a line, I don't know if it's in the film or not, but I know I used it there, was I, I said the Ten Commandments aren't called the Ten Suggestions. And I, did you get that, Aaron? Did you pick that I, line up? or Not in the film, but I remember you saying it. <laughs> and and uh, the glares I got from half those guys, as if I'd somehow used their own religion against them. Mm-hmm. You know, thou shalt not kill. To say these weren't suggestions, this was called a commandment from the God you go to church to worship every Sunday. Well, it was taken well by half those guys and not taken so well by the other half. There were literal glares, and some of those glares do appear now and then. <laughs> That's okay. As you guys know, and as every, everybody who's been in the military knows, we're not some homogeneous, pasteurized milk everybody's like everybody else you remember that from when you were in the military you know after half when you're out of it it's the whole gamut of american culture and civilization is represented in the military maybe in not the same degrees as in the civilian world but they're all represented uh that's a fiction this homogeneity thing that I bet you have experienced and every veteran has, where you can't assume that 
the vet you're talking to shares your beliefs about much of anything. Uh, but the outside world thinks, I think we're all kind of alike. I think we're viewed as, well, you're a vet, or you're all alike. And, and not realizing what it's, what it's like, in fact. It's not well, that way. That's a huge goal of ours is to shine a light on that like diversity of some sort, if you want to say. Absolutely. But I know one of my favorite lines within the documentary is when you're talking to uh, a writer buddy, and I, and I failed to mention his name right now, but you guys are talking about like the shadow over, over your shoulder and everything. Right. But you make a line about like talking about war and how bad it is is so conspicuous. And like, it's, you can't persuade people in some sense. And so you're talking to, and then I think it's relatively close to that time that you're talking to those Vietnam yeah. vets. And mm-hmm. so I kind of wanted to ask about like, as, as a storyteller, documentary or, or writer or any of the, or creator at, at, at all, like, it's our responsibility to share these stories and I guess maybe not get caught up in the moment of, Hey, how much is this influencing people's decisions? Like, can you expand on that of what, what responsibility and I guess what expectations can you have as a, as a writer and a creator? Yeah. Well, my main responsibility is to be honest. That doesn't mean that uh, I expect everybody to agree with me. It means that I have to satisfy myself. I can't go on a camera and say war is fun, war is glamorous. I can't do it. I don't. Others believe that. For some guys I served with, they at least pretended war was fun. They acted like they felt that way. Uh, the racism that I experienced in Vietnam was all around me not just between white soldiers and black soldiers, but American soldiers toward the Vietnamese. Words like gook and dink and slope and all, it was everywhere. Uh, I didn't like it, but some guys thought it was a way of differentiating the good guys from the bad guys. I don't think they were intentionally racist. I think it was a little bit like, we're the cowboys and they're the Indians, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. It wasn't a thought out racism. It was a us against them kind of racism where all the Vietnamese seemed to be the enemy, even though presumably we were there to rescue them from communism. That was, you know, that was what, that was the whole reason for the war <laughs> you know, to contain like communism, but it didn't work that way in practice. And the consequence were all kinds of petty atrocities all the time. I don't mean blowing people away much. Now and then I did mean that. But I mean like peeing in their wells and trampling their rice and pushing the women around and frisking them you know, inappropriately for weapons and all the shit that went on. It's just a daily a petty, trivial atrocity after atrocity that if it happened in Sioux City, or Des Moines, or, you know, in Dallas, people yeah. are going to object to that yeah. kind of behavior. But in the context of a war, so my, my goal is to be honest and not to show the ugliness of war uh, without doing much in the way of political commentary. I, my books don't have it. Yeah. Uh, I avoid it completely. When I'm talking to veterans i'm I'm the i can say what i think that politically but i don't in my books Mm -hmm. i want to instead display what i saw as 
ugliness in all kinds of ways. And that was the truth I witnessed. And so much of what veterans of wars tend to do, especially as they get older, the, the ugliness diminishes and a sort of pride of service takes over. All you sacrificed and all you did dominates over reality of what you'd gone through those years before. And so when you get to be 74 or 75, the ugliness of war is lost under, not lost, but is camouflaged in part um, by a, a sense of personal rectitude and personal pride and so on. Um, so that, that my job, both as a writer, but also as a, as a person who has to go out in public now and then, as I'm doing right now with you, is to be as honest I, as I can, knowing that I'm not, that a lot of people are not going to buy it, are not going to agree with me. Mm. But that's the price that we all pay in our lives. I had a neighbor right next door to me. This happened yesterday. Uh, it, it actually happened to Meredith, who my wife, who transferred the conversation to me. He said, Tim, uh, to Meredith, he said, Tim wrote this book, and I read, I read some of it, obviously not all of it, the things they carried. And he said, so I know your family is really, really conservative, so I don't mind saying to you, the previous administration, meaning the Trump administration, would have done a much better job with what's happening here in Texas as the water is going off and the power is failing and so on. Yeah. Expecting agreement, that's that expectation of you know, homogeneity again. Because I was in the Army, therefore I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Trumpian. And I'm a Trumpian only in the sense of the assassin of Trump's people. That maybe that way I am. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm kidding about that. No, no. <laughs> no, no we're going so, on a watch list for sure. Yeah, yeah, right. Now I am. You better cut that, or I'll have the FBI here. <laughs> no, nah, we'll throw it up. It's fine. We're both out of the army. Yeah. <laughs> well, for the sake of time, I know I, I, there's there's so much more that we can get into, uh, but Keith had. I wanted to talk about the things they carried about being censored and everything. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I don't know, Tyler, did you read it in high school? I did not. So I read it in high school. I actually read it in two different classes in high school and, and I'm thankful for that. Um, it didn't mean to me then what it means to me now, as I'm sure you've heard from other veterans. Oh, yeah. um, I don't think that's a, a unique experience. Um, you know, and I don't think it would mean the same thing to, a you know someone who takes everything absolutely literal without looking into it a, a bit you know N not right. everyone is gonna it, it is it is the one book i can absolutely recommend to a whole bunch of people for a whole bunch of different reasons who are going to you know get mm. a whole bunch of different things out of it um but you know my my question is that you know with i read it in high school now i'm hearing that it it is being taken out of curriculums and it is being you know banned essentially like do you have thoughts about you know have you have you kind of reflected on it is your it, ability to like tell a true story but then have it removed from you know it's not it's true but it's not good enough your service yeah. was good enough then but it's not good enough to be told um it's banned for 
two reasons, really, where it is banned. It's, it doesn't happen often. It happened uh, five months ago in Alaska that some small town had banned it. Mm-hmm. And the small town rebelled and said, you got to put it back in. And the school board reluctantly did it, but they did put it back in the curriculum. It was banned for profanity in that case. The other reasons are political reasons. He's too anti-war, although the book is, doesn't make any political arguments at all. It just shows a war. Uh, I have all kinds of responses to it. The first one is just sort of this anger. One of my kids, Tad, my younger boy, had a comment I was bitching about the book being banned somewhere. And he said, well, Dad, tell them that you'll mo- wash your mouth out with soap. And you'll promise to do it. If they'll promise to go wash all the dead people with soap. And if they promise to do that, then you'll wash your mouth out. That to hide the ugliness of language in the midst of a war, by never calling a shit field a shit field and never using the word fuck, it was used every part of speech, adverb, adjective, verb, I mean, you, <laughs> noun, I mean, every, I mean, everything. And you guys know that, and everybody in the military knows it's all around you. And then to sort of use Ajax and sprinkle it all over our good American white religious Baptist, you know, soldiers, and sprinkle Comet and Ajax and, you know, Mr. Clean all over it, all over our own language, seems to me a gross lie. Mm. It's, it's, to, it's, it's, you send guys to a war, they're going to come home talking dirty, the line right out of the things they carried. And it's a true one. It's not true of everybody. There are those who have somehow managed not to use the word dink and somehow managed not to use the word fuck, but damn few. Uh, and if they want to put an end to that, uh, you know, watch how you vote. You know, <laughs> if, you're voting for wars, you're going to come home with a bunch of guys talking, as I do to, around my own household. I, that's, the, that, the language is embedded in me, and it's always going to be there. Uh, my kids are, are finally inured to it. I've never heard them utter a bad word, and they've been around a billion of them, maybe a trillion. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. They, they, do, they do glare at me occasionally. Uh, one of the kids once asked, well, dad, why do you swear so much? And I said, because I'm good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they, they laughed. I mean, they actually got the joke. That is one of, one of my favorite scenes in the film where Tim is struggling at the gas station and yeah. everyone says, man, he's, he's, he knows how to use the word fuck. And so much. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget that. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I put the credit card in the receipt thing, and it ate my credit card. I didn't put it in the credit card slot. And I I thought it was in the right slot, and it just wouldn't give it back to me. (laughs) Did you get the guy coming back, the guy in the gas station coming out to retrieve the card? Yeah, he's in the film. Yeah, I think that's a generational. Oh, yeah, he was. That's right, yeah. Well, he's it, famous. While we before we wrap it up and everything, Aaron, with with kind of some of these expectations and, and, and things attached to him, like were you standoffish at all, or did you since you knew him personally, and that's usually what it takes to not have any preconceived notions of people? Like, was there any kind of caution, or were you like, no, like 
pretty much anything that happens from here on out, I, I trust the process. I trust him. I trust the story that uh, I'm, I'm willing to make this happen. <laughs> I, w- I was willing to make it happen. Tim was reluctant. And fortunately, he's unfailingly polite. So he left a small door open for me to just kind of hound him until I wore him down, I think. Um, and um, what was your first? What, what was the? Uh, like, were you, were you reluctant at all? Like, once, like, there, oh, there's anything I mean, yeah, attached I to his name? I, I, I want to do the film right from the moment of meeting Tim. I was terrified the entire time of putting this thing together just because you try telling uh, a story about a master storyteller. Yeah. 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 One of my personal credos with, you know, making a documentary. And I think uh, one of the reasons why I'm able to get footage that really feels real and, and intimate is I tell people that I will show them the film before anyone else sees it. I think that kind of takes a lot of pressure off. And I'll, I even showed Tim and his family sequences of the film because as you can imagine you know if you have someone filming you for a year or two and you you haven't seen anything you start to wonder like what the hell is this guy doing what's he gonna yeah. do with all this footage i mean how yeah. the you know who the and by the way who the fuck is he again and you know <laughs> two, two hours of my bathroom routine like no yeah, i mean it's i didn't follow tim into the bathroom but as you can see in the film i went pretty damn close actually i was in the bathroom i'm gonna say when he's shaving <laughs> yeah yeah so um you know it that whole process is one that's like constantly evolving and i'm just like i have so much gratitude to to tim and his family for for letting me be there and for finally Mm -hmm. you know and for agreeing to do the film um i know we certainly appreciate it and i know anybody who who sees it's going to appreciate it and uh as we kind of end all of this is there any final words that either one of you guys want to say about the release date how people can find it and everything well, yeah, I'll say that after all of Aaron's laborious day-by-day struggles, both shooting and editing, which went over the course of five years of his life, went into this project. That's a lot of years of your life to devote to one project. And uh, he managed to extract out of what is essentially a really undramatic life, the guy sitting in front of a computer. That's not what I call high drama. But he managed to extract what there was out of the out of the struggle, and uh, I give him a plus. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Tim. You know how much that means to me. Um, I'll just say that it, I think what people will appreciate about this film, and what Tim is is not valuing when when he says that there wasn't so much drama, is how compelling honesty is on camera. I think we. We've gotten so much, so used to like reality TV and all these like real life courtroom dramas where we're told we're, we're seeing reality and we're told mm-hmm. we're hearing the truth. And it, I, I think for many of us, none of it passes the, the smell test, you know? Mm-hmm. And what you see with Tim, and this is something someone just recently wrote to me. And that is, you see, uh, what they loved so much about the film was, it was great seeing someone who is so allergic to bullshit, yes. you know? And that's, that's him. And he's like, he's willing to talk about things big and small in the most honest ways. You know, our mortality. We don't talk about death in this country. We, we, you know, we, we repress mm-hmm. it. And I think 
that has all kinds of repercussions. We don't oh, talk we about have a whole conversation about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, what are the wars we fight? And he's also incredibly funny. So yeah. you'll see that in the film. Just like people crack up. Absolutely. Gallows humor and, and other situations. You know? so, yeah. so, well, gentlemen, I know I really appreciate you taking the time talk yeah. to us I, I'd, hope, I'd love to get you guys back on because there's a whole list still that we didn't even get to unpack on on our end so um again is it can you uh announce like the release date and how people can find it real fast yeah the, oh sorry the, the film is coming out march 2nd and it, it will be available on digital uh video on demand uh apple tv amazon google play etc basically Everything. everywhere you rent or buy movies you'll be able to see the warm piece of tim o'brien so check it out Awesome. It's on pre-order right now, too, right, Aaron? Yes, you can pre-order okay. on iTunes, Apple TV. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll when you pre-order it, it'll go right to, like, when on the release date, it'll go right to your downloads or whatever. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you, guys. We really, really, really appreciate it. Thank Thanks. you. You made this really comfortable for us. For me, I don't know for Aaron, but being with you guys was, I just was on with Terry Gross two days ago with one of the, really uncomfortable, because she's, you know, so famous and millions. You guys made us really comfortable, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, the biggest, I, I think the biggest misperception is that somehow we're damning. But nothing, nothing really can stop us.